So, hi, Lenny. Welcome back. Hi, Adam. It's uh, nice to be back. It's nice to be still alive. <laughs> yeah, still alive. So, um, you remember your last episode? When was it? I do. Uh, it was, uh, well, it had to be like in early May, because uh, on May 22nd is when I had my back surgery and it was exactly. really, really scary. It was uh, June the 13th, and it was in episode 92. And just to you know, the... Uh, to uh two-factor authentication in my podcast so you still remember what was your first computer uh yes i do still remember what my what what, what my first computer was the commodore 64 or my, uh, my first computer with the victory not not right my first computer was victory the first exactly. computer exactly is, is so okay now you are lenny no now we are talking so now <laughs> so um how your surgery went so everything okay you still you look like, like a human so it's, everything seems to be right. Everything works. Yes, I uh, I'm still I'm still alive, which I was really worried about that that I will not come out alive from this, which is unsubstantiated, but still. Um, the the doctor told me that I went in right on time because uh, he said that if I didn't do the surgery, there would be more more nerve damage than there is now. Uh, there was nerve damage. He said there was. It, it was very slight. Uh, I don't really feel like I had any kind of nerve damage, but you know, I, I believe the doctor. And but he said I'll make a full recovery. Uh, and my wife is mad at me because my doctor said not to mow the lawn or pick up uh, any yard waste until the next year. So my wife is very mad at me because now because before she's she's like oh after a month or three months or two months. You'll be able to do the yard work again, and now I come back from the doctor, and 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 she hears that I can't do uh, the yard work for the rest of 2020. So she's but like, in in not, your not, case, not uh, in your case, I was I will pick another doctor. Maybe you get you know extension to 2022, you know, with the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I wish I want to help my uh, I want to help my wife with the yard work. I yeah, it was different. You can, you can, for instance, try you know to program a robot or something like this. So this would be you know uh, useful help in in the household, <laughs> or or you know do do some blinking lights with Raspberry Pi for Christmas. Also nice nice work, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I Very useful. So uh, you are a grounded pilot, right? So it's over with flying, or what's what's the situation? Well, uh, I actually technically went back to work in September. Oh. But unfortunately, uh, my airline decided to announce in August that they're shutting down at the end of September. So my airline has shut down at this point, and uh, obviously nobody is uh, hiring. I've been able to. I've, I've been. I've been trying. You know, for a few months, even before the company, my airline shut down. I've been trying to figure out what my next step would be. And uh, unfortunately, all the aviation business is is pretty dead. If uh, you know, if if, if we wanted to move somewhere uh, from Lincoln, I could probably get an aviation job, but that's not in the cards for many reasons. And uh, so right now, uh, my my career has been like truly upended. My life, it it, it was kind of hard psychologically because. One, once the airline really announced that they were shutting down, uh, basically my aviation career, it's either on hold for at least five years or completely gone at this point because 
you know, I'm getting old and when you start and like when you start a new airline, you start from the very bottom and that requires okay. uh, many, 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 many days away from home a month. Most of the month I'd be away from home and I don't want to do that at 50 years old. I, I really don't. Okay. And um, so um, I, I think the last time I was at the airport was probably January or February. So um, it is like uh, it's almost no no one in the airplanes. So what's the situation? So it's like the traffic cut a half or or even less. So what what is this? Well, mm -hmm. well, my last flight was May first, okay. and uh, during the month of April, which I kind of flew somewhat. Uh, the airplanes uh, I fly fifty person airplanes. There was one two people okay an airplane. The airports were completely empty. Everything okay. was shut down. But apparently in the U.S. over our Thanksgiving holiday, we had a lot of, uh, we had over a million people, uh, which is about 50% of normal okay. uh, that's not over Thanksgiving. Again, I haven't been traveling or doing anything since May 1st. So, okay. So, but you are no more a pilot anymore or is it on hold? And you restarted your second career, which was actually more and more or was a leisure almost activity what is um so what, what are you doing right now you are a programmer right again yeah yeah so uh my uh once a pilot always a pilot even before you're a pilot once you're getting your first uh, uh pilot certificate uh even when you uh, i consider somebody a pilot when they solo when they first get in the airplane all by themselves and do those three takes off and landings that is a key point a key moment in a pilot's life that's when you become a true and actual pilot. So I'll always be a pilot. I am no longer a commercial pilot or an airline pilot at this point, even though I have my certificates, uh, they don't expire. So uh, as a career, it's on hold, probably on indefinite hold, uh, unless something really, really drastic happens. So I was, you know, I was forced to uh, my my second career. My first career was a violinist. My second career was a programmer, and my third career was a pilot. So now I was kind of like uh, pushed into resuming my second career uh, full time. So uh, I do want to talk to you about uh, some interview experiences that I've had uh, lately, if if that's what you'd like. Yeah, sure. So, but you are back to Payara, right? Uh, I am, uh, but I want to tell a story how that wound up happening. Yeah, this is, of course, is interesting. So go ahead. Very, very, very interesting. Um, so uh, the first thing when I realized that flying was no longer an option and I needed to figure out how to get back into uh, programming full time, I did talk to uh, Payara. Uh, but, you know, they, it, it, it takes a while to get anything of that on, uh, uh, squared away. But I talked to other people and I tried to get some interviews lined up. Uh, I talked to some hedge funds back in New York with some friends of mine that uh, uh, that I know for a long time. And basically what I found out is that all the hedge funds, they want somebody on site. So remote wasn't a possibility. Maybe they changed their mind now, but, you know, this is a different story back then, which was not that long ago, uh, maybe in uh, about September time frame. Everybody was saying that, uh, yeah, they're going to need somebody on site, uh, COVID or no COVID. So uh, no go for that. Uh, so I tried, I tried Google. I have a friend at Google that recommended me for a job at Google. 
So I uh, basically what you do at Google is you apply a few times uh, for some jobs that seem to be a match for you. So I applied for three jobs at Google, and within a day or two, I got rejected for all three of them, even though I had an internal recommendation. So that didn't work out so well. Uh, so next, that same friend who recommended me at Google, he's like, look, uh, I, I got an email from a recruiter from Amazon. Uh, so, you know, since I'm not leaving Google, I'll send them to you. So now, so, so I got this, uh, so I got in touch with this Amazon recruiter and uh, she's like, yeah, we'd love to interview you. We saw your resume, that, that, that's fantastic. We have plenty of, plenty of jobs. So uh, the first thing that they did is they gave me an online coding assessment. I don't know, Adam, have you, have you, uh, have you uh, dealt with any of that? Have you, no. Uh, no? So that's the first thing that they do. It's, uh, there's there's a few of those now that I found out there's a few of those coding assessments and what they have you do is write a program that uh, does some kind of an algorithmic thing like figure out a depth of a binary tree or or uh, there is some kind of a there are these things that you know you study in computer science mm -hmm. class I don't know if you like remember any of that yeah, um, I remember that but it's, I think it could be really hard I mean who knows you know all the algorithms. Well, that's uh, that's that's what I'm getting at, and uh, the Amazon interview consisted on doing two of these problems, and they I guess there's a cottage industry now that 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 deals with this. So not only can you type in a program, but they have like uh, on the website, right on that website, they can compile that and they can test it. So so they they basically run tests against your code and they said that one or two tests passed and 15 failed and they don't tell you why they failed or how they failed so so it's it, it's it's kind of crazy uh so i was able to get this um, remembers that, me you, you uh, are you actually a sun certified java programmer i'm not no i i, I did the certification i, I think it was 1999 and what I really remember is that there was a multiple choice, but you had no idea how many of the answers are right. And um, and it was really hard because there were like the corner cases of Java Java syntax. So um, so this was really hard. And the, the first uh, certification I failed, and then the second I passed. But what I what I find out back then is there was a trainer at Sun Microsystems who actually teached. The, the the courses uh, for Sun, Sun certified Java programmer, and he tried I think like fifteen times, and was never successful with the with the certification itself himself. Right. So by some miracle, I was able to finish the the two problems with about sixty percent of the pa tests passing because I couldn't figure out what what was wrong with the other test, uh, and submitted it. And then so I was waiting for the next step. So there was like no next step, no next step. So I contact the recruiter again. I'm like, what's going on? And she's like, oh, we're having some technical issues. I think we lost your tests. Oh. So I'm like, oh, great. Like, like, are you going to make me do this again? Because I don't think I can, or nor, nor am I willing to do this. Uh, or are you going to like go to the next step? And you remember what, what it exactly was? What kind of uh, algorithm you had to implement? One of them was figure out the, you've got a like an unbalanced binary tree or something like that. Okay. And you had to figure out the, the deepest, like the deepest part of the tree. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's, it's, it's basically loops and 
not even recursion, basically loops and checks and saving mm -hmm. state. It's 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 not very. Uh, it, this is something that my brain just shuts down when I see something like that. And this so, is like a Java <laughs> program in Java or in what? Yeah, they have you pick a language. Okay. And one of them is obviously Java. Okay. But but this kind of stuff, uh, it's it just it's it just not a real world. Something that that you never encounter in in, in real world. You you might do okay if. You're just out of college. You've been doing this basically. You've been trained on this, but it's it's like it, it's very it, it's very hard and it's not very useful. Yeah. It, it's not very useful in real world. Uh, so the next, so the, so they lost that. After all of that, they lost it. The next step was uh, apparently I, 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 I sat on a, I sat with a guy that they have basically five thousand people in a pool of interviewers. And they have scripted questions. And I'm like, do you even customize this for the experience of people? He's like, no, we haven't seen your resume. This is just what we do. This is scripted. You know, you just, uh, you, you, you just do that. And he gave me also this kind of an algorithmic problem of some kind. I, this one, I totally don't remember what it was. Uh, but uh, it took me basically 45 minutes to solve it. And the guy said that uh, I'm not fast enough, or he didn't say it, but after the interview was over, I got an email that that your, your services will not be required at Amazon, basically. Mm -hmm. So I was not good enough uh, for a Amazon coding interview. Uh, the only thing is, I, I believe I solved this problem correctly, uh, but it's not, I, did, I wasn't fast enough, uh -huh. uh, I guess, for them. That, that's, that's what I figured. So, um, it's a, so there was a no from Amazon. I, uh, and then I have some other, I had some other leads in New York that I followed through. Uh, also, like half of them required some kind of coding task. Which you know, I, I'm like, I, I can't, I, I can't do this too many times, right? It just drains you to no end. And the other interview I had was uh, the, uh, it's a web page, and they ask you a question, and you have to record your answer right on the web page. Okay. So that was kind of interesting. I did that. I heard nothing back from those people. Uh, I heard something from one, uh, one company in New York. Uh, and they basically wanted a uh, what's in the U.S. I'm not sure what it means for international audiences, but in the U.S. they wanted a, uh, a personal 1099. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It's it's an hourly W-2 with no benefits, which means you're paying 50% taxes, which is kind of high in the U.S. Uh, uh, for the amount of money that we're offering with zero benefits and zero way to uh, deduct any of your taxes. Uh, so I, I'm like, I couldn't, I, I, I said, no, I, I just can't go through with this because I'm losing my health benefits and, and not getting much in return. So I said no to that. And by this, by the time all of this has, has concluded, uh, I was able to schedule an interview with Payara uh, because they have like uh, it used to be that I, I I interviewed with the CEO. Now they have they're they're a little bit bigger. They wanted me to interview with the product manager, the project manager, which I did that, and you know I uh, so I accepted and I accepted I accepted an offer to go back to Payara. So that's how I wound up back in Payara right right at this moment. So uh, what do you do at Payara right now? Okay, so uh, I used to be basically Java developer. Now 
they have me in a role of uh, test engineer, huh. uh, which, which is improving testing and QA and continuous integration and DevOps and, and all that stuff, which is, which is good for me because I haven't really dealt with any of that stuff uh, on a professional level before. Uh, you know, I just installed Docker recently. I was avoiding that because it's on a Mac. It's not. It's not that that great. Uh, Actually, so on Mac, it is easy. I mean, if you install the application, then you can use your command line, and it just works, right? Well, it is easy, but it requires a not, like a Linux virtual machine, so it's not very fast. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it's fast enough. So my machine, it is really fast enough, right? So it's not like if I launch Payara on Docker on Payara outside Docker, it's not a huge difference on my machine. Uh, are you on a Mac? Yeah. Yeah, you must have some new Mac. I, my Mac is like six years old, so maybe maybe my Mac. is I think two years old. Yeah, that's there's 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 a difference. Mm -hmm. um, but it does work. You're you're absolutely right. It works. It works just fine. Uh, yeah, but uh, it just you know this is good for me when I when I did this whole you know uh, to do the uh, to get back into testing and what the current state of testing is. As a matter of fact, I submitted a whole bunch of uh, bugs and issues and PRs to Archelion because, you know, now I have to deal with that kind of stuff. And uh, I know you don't use Archelion too much, but with Payara, you have to because that's the only way to test Payara itself, right? Mm -hmm. So, so Archelion is a good way to uh, to test Payara. Also, like, dabbled in test containers and JUnit 5 and all that kind of kinds of good stuff which so is, no no more no more reactive programming for you right so you were always active so if i did something with reactive programming i always get you no know, feedback from you or project loom right well um uh, let's let's talk about i mean reactive is such an overloaded word uh i have i have an issue with a very small subset of reactive which is the whole you know a mess of it used to be a mess of callbacks. Now it's a mess of completable futures and lambdas and all that stuff. And uh, uh, it's it's like, oh, I want to have reactive JDBC. Even Oracle doesn't have reactive reactive JDBC. Um, so in my in my view of the world, uh, Project Loom is going to change uh, that part of the reactive which I don't like, which is the the whole you know you can never block type of thing. Uh, like yeah, when you, so when you I, 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 I'm with you. So the reactive programming, I would say, makes only sense if you have reactive data sources. So um, in my current project where we use Kafka, it is just natural reactive because you have like a stream of events which sits somewhere, and you can subscribe to that, and you are done. Which exactly. which reactive doesn't make any sense. This is what uh, happened, you know, a few years ago with. Uh, I was asked about reactive programming and what they actually wanted to do is, you know, to combine JAXRS uh, synchronous calls to something to coordinate the calls in, and they hope that they achieve better performance, which could be actually even true, but was never a problem in my project. So I would say reactive done right. It is simple and natural, but not everything has to be reactive. And you're right. If you now with Project Loom, if you have to build, let's say, API gateway. This would be the perfect case for Project Loom, where you will have to call, you know, several JAXRS uh, resources uh, in a sequence. You can use Project Loom and just rely on program programming as we know, like, like just calling, you know, the method and don't care about anything, and it will be and it will be fast enough with the 
loom like green threads, right? Exactly, exactly. That's, uh, th that's the whole thing. If you are doing naturally reactive stuff, like listening to Kafka, listening to JMS, uh, anything that basically, uh, 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 anything that anything that reacts to stuff naturally, it's that's perfect. That that that's great. Yeah. But when, when you're talking about converting your imperative uh, programs into reactive, just because you think it's going to be slow, like you know, just 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 instead of calling. Uh, Service orchestration is, is basically one thing. It's a perfect example that you made. Service orchestration, yes, in today's world, uh, if you're Netflix, you need that. But in, you know, looking two, three years from now, even a year from now, I think Loom is going to be at, at most two years. I think they're very close to being done. So if you're like writing code that's going to be alive two years from now, and you think you're going to be a Netflix two years from now, there's no need for, for, for any of this, uh, callback or lambda hell or, or anything, any of this, uh, what I call like fake reactive, which is, you know, reactive for the sake of, oh, maybe this won't perform well, like when, if I become Netflix type of things, there's no need for that because Project Loom is going to fix that. And uh, uh, the, the, the great thing about Project Loom is that very few things are going to need to change if you are doing things as you're doing them today. Just yeah. just do things that you're doing them today with J Jakarta EE now and MicroProfile, and it'll perform just fine. You just plug in Project Loom, and it'll just work, uh, and you don't have to change your code, which is which is perfect. Yeah, this is yeah, this is what how it should be. This is uh, but I would say this reactive programming was a little bit excitement, you know, generated at conferences, very similarly to similar to. AOP aspect-oriented programming, um, mm -hmm. also no, even it was ten years ago, and uh, yeah. I think recently I uh, spent some time in a code review in a project, and uh, they use actually uh, Spring with AOP. So I used this AOP the first time for ages, and it felt really ancient. So they had they did you know stuff with uh, cryptic syntax just to have uh, aspects which we we could now easily do with um, annotations and and uh, and uh, f for the, for that what they did uh, just interceptors would be enough um yeah yeah and i also think a lot of that came, a lot of this stuff comes from javascript because javascript there's only there's that's the only way you can do things right you you mean what uh with uh, aop or with uh threads they, they they like the callbacks and the quote unquote reactive oh, programming. Uh, yeah, the callbacks were call. Um, yeah, there were callbacks. Then the uh, the uh, solution to the callbacks were so called promises, which are very similar to Java futures. So it's not a real problem because you still is ugly. And the recent JavaScript uh, introduced something where it's similar to asynchronous what we have in Java E six. So you can, uh, or even five, Java six, I think. At asynchronous, you can, uh, you can, uh, you can annotate, you know, EJPs with asynchronous, and um, this is in JavaScript called async. And if a method is async inside the method, you can use await, and this looks like Java. So you are actually the entire method becomes asynchronous, but inside the method, you can work with the functions as if this were, you know, request response functions which is similar to Loom. So I would say that the great thing about JavaScript, if you have a Java programmer, 
and you can ignore all the JavaScript frameworks and just use vanilla ES6 and then program like Java right now. Right. All, like, all I'm saying that this whole this whole hype about you know everything needs to have a future and callback and all that stuff. I think part of that is comes from JavaScript no, prior no. to what you said. It, it came it came right? earlier. So uh, before JavaScript, uh, I did, in Java there was a framework called Akka. I don't know what they remember. A A K K A, and it yeah. was uh, prior the promises in JavaScript. And I remember. No, I, I yeah, and a lots of but, conferences and lots of conferences. People wanted to have, you know, the or the the, the Akka was very, uh, very popular back then. I have to look it up yeah. when it actually was. And um, what I remember in some projects, uh, developers use Akka, and they ask me, you know, how to do, debug the stuff because uh, the problem was the messages <laughs> overtook each other, and it was hard to debug. And I asked them, you know, why you use Akka at all? I mean, I don't see any reactivity in your business logic. Say, so, yeah, but because they were at the conference, right? Exactly. So, so, so I, I think that's all part of that, but I think the whole, like the hype came from the JavaScript land. That's my guess. Again, I, I, I think that, that that's what happened. There was already like the hype before, but I think JavaScript, because a lot of people use callbacks in JavaScript, they're like, oh, Java needs this because, you know, there is this perceived performance problem. Uh, so I think that's why it became so popular and so hyped up, part of it. Uh, but now it, with Project Loom, I, I, with Project Loom on the horizon, I think it's going to be a shift back to imperative programming and you know request response. It was really that. prior to that. Uh, you know why? Because it came with Netflix. So the reactive programming prior to Akka, it was Eric's J. This was a reactive Java, and this is when it started. So right. uh, Netflix came with this RxJ Java, reactive Java library, and right. uh, and then it was applied everywhere else, and Akka was the next framework. So RxJ was the beginning. And uh, let's take a look, RxJ um, Netflix, and this is how it became so popular. And I see already reactive programming in the Netflix API from 2013, but it was... Uh, it was not the beginning. So I found the article, which is already seven years old. And it is right. obviously prior to um, JavaScript 2015, which introduced promises. And back then it was callback hell in JavaScript land. So uh, you, right. you, you couldn't just use it. And now we have RxJS, which is part of Angular, for instance. Um, hmm. I just, where is the pointer to, um, let's say, RxJ GitHub, I think they have. What's interests me right now, there's um, Reactive X and there should be Reactive Java. Rx Java, not Rx J. Rx Java. That's Java. I, I yeah, that's and me. there were 245 releases. And um would be interesting to see one of the first releases, but uh, I'm pretty sure it is prior to 2010 even. And, well, uh, well, fortunately, with Project Loom, you won't have to worry about any of that because, oh, and I have to mention uh, back pressure because everybody is like, oh, what about back pressure? With Project Loom, most of the back pressure is going to get solved naturally because you basically won't be able to queue up too many things because you're, you're going to be imperative anyway because it just the, the, the things are going to have, the things are going to wait naturally with Project Loom. So your uh, people are going to say, oh, what about back pressure? With Project Loom, for the most part, for 99% of the cases, it's not going to be an issue. 
Right. And if you have micro profile with back, back pressure, we could still use uh, the bulkhead pattern where you can say no more than five threads. It should even work with Project Loom because Project Loom should work under the hood, not, you know, should not be exposed yeah. to yeah. the upper layers. Well, you can't say five threads because of Project Loom, you can have a million threads with, with no problem. Yeah. But um, the five threads is not like, you know, what they actually mean, not threads rather than there yeah, should five be not five friends. parallel transactions. That's what I mean yeah, by that. Yeah, five, five, na five native threads. Whether so this is no one one thread or fifty threads, I don't care. I don't. I just would like to have five users at the same time in the system, right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. So the bottom line is that back pressure is 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 a is not an unsolved problem with little nets. It's people are thinking about it. It's been solved. So that's it's it's not going to be an issue. Mm -hmm. uh, so. Uh, I mean, that's that's basically my spiel on Project Loom. It, it looks complicated. It's complicated on the JDK side, but I think they figured figured all of this stuff out pretty well. On the user side, it just simplifies things tremendously. Yeah. You don't have to you don't have to have all your libraries converted. It's beautiful. Okay. Um, so related to this, I uh, on my downtime after my back surgery. I actually, uh, b before I, uh, I uh, as part of looking at Project Loom, I, I tried to figure out how to do this new algorithm called Chunk.io mm -hmm. to figure out if I could improve performance on something like Grizzly or Undertow by using this algorithm. And the one thing I have to say is it failed miserably, but it's great. I It's great that it failed. I know what not to do. And I know that this kinds of algorithms don't work properly. And it's perfectly fine. It's a learning experience. And uh, what I want to, what I want the listeners to get out of this is, don't afraid to, don't be afraid to experiment, even if it. So what you did exactly with chunked IO and why it failed? Okay, so you know how uh, when you have a million sockets, uh, you're trying to create like a huge. Uh, hugely performant web server. And you so have with Nio. So what 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 I remember what Grizzly did yeah. is you have uh, you have one. So it is handled by the operating system, and you get a kind of a key or handle back, right? Which you have to maintain. And this uh, mm -hmm. this is your how it's called key or handle. And this uh, you have to manage key that. Selector. It's 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 selectors. Selectors exactly, and you have maintained them. This is actually the challenge. What uh, also the Grizzly. Author, I forgot his name. This was the Canadian guy. Uh, I think it's Alex something. Yeah, from from Grizzly team from Glassfish team back then. Brian, there's and, two of them, Brian and Alex, I think. And they spend a lot of time optimizing, you know, because you can get uh, memory leaks easily uh, back, mm -hmm. and uh, you get the selectors, and the selectors is um, you get the associate association between the thread or how to call it, no more thread, like the parallel behavioral process with your socket, right? And you have maintained by yourself. So what you did exactly with that? So what, you implemented yeah. Grizzly from scratch or you tried to optimize Grizzly? What Grizzly is, to... this is the origin web server from Glassfish introduced, I think, in Glassfish 3, which made the mm -hmm. Comet-style communication possible back then, which was revolutionary, because with mm -hmm. Comet, what you could do is like web sockets without web sockets. So you could push back messages to the browser. Right, it's basically full duplex persistent I/O channels, basically websites. Uh, yes. Uh, so the way Grizzly works works is uh, it's it's got a thread, one thread that handles all the socket I/O. Mm -hmm. Basically, 
you can you can have more than one but you can let's strip for this conversation's sake let's strip this out you have just one thread handling all the socket io uh, so the first question are they so-called accept HTTP threads on uh, in Payara? Are are these threads? Is this exactly this or not? Uh, Payara uses Grizzly, so yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, you, uh, for simplicity's sake, let's say let's let's say we have one thread that deals with all the sockets. So it accepts, it pushes it, you know, pushes it back, then it returns, it processes it, blah blah blah. Perfect. So I'm uh, so it's all non-blocking. So. My issue is that with non-blocking is uh, that when you do non-blocking, you have you have twice the work. One is to read or write, and two is to issue that call that does the select that figures out how many descriptors are available, which ones are available, what what they are, communicate that into the application program, and then the application program has to decide to say, oh, this one's available for read, let's read that. And when you issue the read call, the operating system has to do the same thing all over again. Here's the socket, is this available? If it is, here's the buffer, put it in, blah, blah, blah. So my, uh, uh, my hypothesis was that all of this doubling of the work could be eliminated if you use just blocking I.O., but limit the amount of data that you read. So, so what that does, is instead of you know do a non-blocking and then read one and then the you know do a select and read do a select and read uh what you would do is just do a blocking read from multiple threads at the same time and it, 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 it and the uh the solution to the problem of you know you're going to have a million threads is that uh if you chunk the io in the exact size of the actual buffer the reads are going to happen immediately, 99 out of 100% of the time. So your threads, even if uh, your, your threads, which you're obviously going to limit to like some sort of a reasonable value, are not going to interfere with the parale parallelism. So you're still going to have that parallelism and scalability that you want, but instead of using non-blocking and selector loops, you're going to use multiple threads to achieve the same thing. Uh, so what I found out is that if you scale this past about one thread per CPU, basically, if you have a four-core machine, if you scale this past four, which this algorithm requires about you know a hundred or two hundred, it, it still works, but the performance goes down and not up. The performance goes down to about uh, sixty to seventy percent of the non-blocking. It's not horrible. It still works but it doesn't improve performance, which is what I was looking for. Yeah, but the question is how much can you achieve, let's say on a four core CPU, comparing it with, with four threads, with chunked, comparing it to one threads with Nio? Oh, I'm comparing four to four. I'm not comparing one to one. I'm comparing apples to apples here. Uh, I just said one as far as simplicity is concerned. So we're, if okay. we compare- What is that, an to unusual, Configuration to run Grizzly with on four CP or four threads, right? Well, I'm not just trying to run Grizzly. I'm trying to get a real-world test. So the actual there's actual processes behind it that do some kind of dummy calculation. Okay, so if you compare it four to four, what was the situation then? Yeah, four to four apples to apples comparison. The chunk AU algorithm was about doing about seventy percent of what the non-blocking algorithm was doing, and I was expecting orders of magnitude higher. Yeah, and I was expecting 
the same performance. I'm stunned that there's a difference. Uh, oh, you're talking about four threads. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't, uh, uh, the problem is you can't have four threads in the Changpeo algorithm because it's not enough threads not to have some requests have unreasonable latency. It requires about at least, it, it, it requires at least 10 times the threads that, uh, the threads, the amount of acceptors, okay, there's, has to be at least 10 times the number of threads as they are accepted. So if you have four threads, if you yeah. have four exceptions, you need 40 threads. Yeah, in, in your chunked algorithm, right? And in the That's Grizzly right. way, would be four threads. That's right. Okay, so 40 to four, and then you got uh, the, the performance was like 60 or 70%, right? Yes, in in, in, a, in a case that would actually work and be scalable, I was expecting like five to 10 times more performance out of the Chantayo. And unfortunately, what I found out is that the thread contention yeah. uh, in the kernel just kills any of the gains that, that were I thought were possible. And the only way you find this out is by experimenting. You just can't find this out by, by theory. You, you just can't do it. What would be interesting, now your experiment with 40 threads on Loom, whether it will be any oh, difference. Uh, Oh, with with Loom, you don't even have to have any of this. You can just do it in, in an imperative way. You don't have. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What I'm saying, because the, the the threads doesn't to, to, don't matter, but you will still need, you know, a way to fill your buffers, right, with some kind of parallel behavior, how, however you call it. So it'll be interesting, you know, your chunked I/O experiment on Loom. Well, the the way uh, I'm I'm imagining that uh, that we would work on. Uh, uh, with Payara, when Project Loom comes out, we are, are deciding to support it. All we need to do is switch Grizzly from native threads to the Loom virtual threads, mm -hmm. and that's basically 99% of the work. Yeah, so this is what instead... I understand. But right now you have working solution with, let's say, 40 threads chunked I.O., which uh, are comparable yes. to four threads Grizzly. So if you use yeah. the 40 threads switching from native to Loom, this would be interesting what happens then. Oh, 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 no. You have to have 40 native threads for the chunk to work. Oh, okay. You can't do threads at all, like, in, okay. in this, because it, 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 you'll have you'll have unreasonable latency at that point. And you already used the, um, how to call it, the uh, the uh, rewritten, I think, datagram socket from JDK 15 or 16, you know? They, 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 yes, they, yes. You use that or all the I.O. APIs? Well, we're dealing with the TCP sockets, mm -hmm. and what what I actually had to do to make all of that Chunk.io stuff work, I had to basically rip out uh, when you when you create a TCP socket when you do a read and write, uh, JDK under the covers does its own like it switches the socket from blocking to non-blocking and vice versa, does its own does its own little select to figure out whether there is anything in the buffer. With Chunk.io, I didn't need any of that. So I had to basically make a module that plugged into the JDK itself to basically rip all that code out to have plain reads and writes to just do socket reads and writes under the covers as opposed to uh, doing all the stuff that JDK does ordinarily. Uh, so there's it, it, it's it's it was kind of interesting and you know JDK eight is is different than JDK sixteen. Uh, because you know JDK nine introduced module path and all that stuff. You know boot class loader disappeared. So all that stuff, all that stuff was it, it was a very interesting experience. And, and what was first was uh, was first the performance or throughput or scalability? So what what was your actually idea that 
you can run more concurrent application or you know single th or a, a view threads faster you know what i mean so it is like yes. you, you search for solution for an api gateway with millions of users or for payara to run faster just well the, the idea was to increase uh throughput by orders of magnitude okay uh without without increasing latency to unacceptable levels so there would be a trade-off with latency it's 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 100 but not in in the worst case scenario on an average case latency should stay the same on the worst case scenario there could be increased latency for some connections but and if, that's you, if you had over. machine with 40 cpus what what's mm -hmm. then then it would be faster if i had a machine with 40 cpus would it be faster? It would be the same. I could not get it to run any faster. Okay, because it would be interesting. So you chunked I.O. with you know, uh, as many threads as CPUs comparing to Grizzly. Yes, and it, 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 it's, it, it's the same. Unfortunately, again, the worst case latency is increased compared to Grizzly. So it doesn't make any sense to do. Okay, so it was not like a hardware problem, it was more an algorithmic problem, right? Well, it's the way the algorithm works, uh, and and it's not a fact that it's not a matter of fact that you could you could re redo the algorithm to make it better. It's just that the way that modern systems work, uh, and the way the non-blocking I/O has been optimized up to this point. I tried this experiment before. The first time I tried this experiment was about twelve or thirteen years ago in C plus plus land, and it actually worked. But today. The kernel and the ecosystem around it increased. Uh, it, it just improved a lot at this point. So the operating system optimizes is optimized for exactly this type of I/O that Grizzly does. And right now there is no advantage because the operating system and all that stuff has been improved. What would be interesting to try the same on the Apple M1 chip. Interesting. You know what M1 chip is. I know that they're coming out with that, and I know that that's going to make me buy a new computer. <laughs> so what? Uh, what? Uh, it is already out, and uh, the stunning stuff is this M1 chip from Apple is some ARM-based uh, architecture, and uh, it costs um, the same as you know the entry-level Max. Actually, it starts with eight hundred euros or something like this, roughly, mm -hmm. dollars. And uh, the why it could be interesting because what they did is. They uh, they have one memory for everything. So the RAM and GPU and everyone sees the same memory. So uh, it is very fast to read and write from memory. And maybe this changes, you know, the situation. So this, um, no idea, but it would be just interesting, you know, to see how this behaves on M1 chip because this, um, this ARM is kind of, future because um, apple runs on m1 the um, aws has their own arm graviton chips cpus and um, you know arm seems to be an interesting idea and um, the architecture is different so it could behave differently right just it's an interesting question you know project still around does the java runs on it Did, uh, have you run? open sourced the project somewhere github or? Uh, uh, no i i did not uh, but it could easily done. It's it's under Git, so I just push it to GitHub. Yeah, it could be interesting, man. Why not? Probably the community could you know experiment with it. And speaking of community, I had the toughest time getting a PR into Hazelcast. Hazelcast, if you're listening, yeah. merge my PR, please. 
<laughs> okay. What you did with Hazelcast? I had a long, over three years, outstanding issue with integrating Pyara with Hazelcast because uh, uh, Hazelcast assumes, you know, single application with no class loading. With Pyara, what happens is if you start using Hazelcast feature, you unload and reload your application, everything breaks because it's it, it Hazelcast caches the old classes and the old class loaders. Mm -hmm. So. I'm like, you, you, like people are in Payara customers are starting to use Hazelcast and they're like, oh, we're getting weird issues and, and this class loader problems and all that stuff. So um, I was kind of, so, so that required a PR to his, Hazelcast. So I wrote it, you know, the Hazelcast people didn't like it. So I had, you know, one guy rewrote the whole thing. And now I tested on Payara side, nothing works. So I fixed it all up. I went in, to, you know, resubmitted it back to Hazelcast. And then there's another guy who doesn't like something else. And it's it's just like, it's going through an endless review that's lasted over three years now. <laughs> so I'm getting okay. upset, as okay. you can imagine. Okay. Um, so so th this is a, this was your Ozolija project or one of your, no, no, your commercial involvement with Payara? Well, at first it was a Payara project because it was customer complaints. And then okay. when I didn't work for Payara anymore, uh, uh, it uh, that project, customer project, didn't didn't make it or something like that. Uh, so they're actually pretty big Payara customer. So the project doesn't mean the Payara didn't work out, but one of the projects that required these enhancements didn't work out or they decided to do it some some different way. So it wasn't a problem for them anymore. So, but there are some people who are uh, not customers that I know of were complaining about the same issue. So when I was not working for Payara, it became a leisure project. And now that I'm working for Payara, it became another professional project again. <laughs> okay. Um, if you can talk about it, where Payara is going, you know, what, they're hiring a lot of people. So, and uh, what is the mission of Payara? Where, where are they, they get, you know, the the um, mailing list with cloud native or whatever. So um, do they have, you know, any, you can t uh, talk about that or should I invite, you know, Steve Millich again? No, no, sure. Actually, uh, actually that was, that was one of my questions. Uh, can I talk about this stuff? Uh, well, the one big change that Payara went through while I was not at Payara was Payara Enterprise. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so now Payara has two versions, Payara Community and Payara Enterprise. They're both open source. Uh, they're both on. The, they're both available. The difference is that community is, you know, got the latest features and the, the new new stuff that might like basically go fast and break things. We're trying not. We're trying not to break things, but things do get broken. Uh, so we try to move Payara fast, or community fast, 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 fast. But when things are stable enough in community. We migrate them to enterprise, and also they in enterprise they monitor like a lot of different monitoring features are built in by default, so you don't have to go and get them and, and combine them and make sure they work together. The enterprise basically uh, it's a stable version that works, basically kind of like Red Hat, uh, yeah. Red Hat Enterprise Distribution. Yeah, but I mean that's that is just uh, you know the I would say commercial support strategy. But yes. uh, what what they are doing beyond Jakarta and MicroProfile, this is the interesting part because uh, okay. what is the uh, so added, added value, like the Hazelcast or I don't know, 
whether they have you know specific cloud integration or whatever. Okay, there's there's so many. Uh, Hazelcast is one of them. If Hazelcast, when I hope Hazelcast merges merges my PR, we're able to do full Hazelcast integration. That means all of Hazelcast is available in Pyara to use, which means uh, caching, distributed maps. Uh, I'm excited about distributed locking. I don't know, maybe uh, call me funky, but I love distributed locking. Like things like you have a cluster and you want to pick a leader. Hazelcast does that. So yep. Pyara has that. Yeah, this is the uh, replacement of Zookeeper. Usually, you know, the leader election, something like this is would be the job of Zookeeper. And if you can do it with Hazelcast, yeah, if it works. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and Hazelcast is really well designed to be to be scalable because they have this partitioning schemes where basically distributed throughout the cluster, and uh, there's like real time backups and real time performance, the routing. So when you go to get one object, and you know there's too many people are, are getting to that one object, it splits it automatically into different nodes. There, there's a lot of these enterprise features in Hazelcast that you don't even think about that are uh, that are fantastic and then can be used pretty much directly in Jakarta EE and microprofile applications on Payara. So that that kind of stuff is exciting to me. The other that's uh, thing that's exciting to me is Payara Insight, which is uh, basically cool dashboards around microprofile metrics and internal Payara metrics, which, by the way, Payara is exposing more and more metrics to microprofile uh, in order to do this whole Payara Insight thing. It's, it's, uh, if you go on YouTube and look at Payara Insight and look at the video, uh, it, it's, it's actually quite amazing. Uh, uh, it, it, it's actually, uh, I know you talk about useful met metrics, Adam. This is exactly that. Mm -hmm. Useful application metrics, exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, what um, happened already a couple of years ago, so Payara always exposed a lot of metrics. This is actually one of the reasons why I use Glassfish. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Started a Glassfish V2 or V1 even, because they always mm -hmm. had a great uh, um, admin console and metrics. And uh, what you can do with Payara right now is you can choose you know, one of your JMX metrics and expose them immediately to MicroProfile. So this is uh, also nice because you can say, okay, I would like to have this and this JMX metrics. You, you have to write a, an XML snippet and then it's available in uh, as a MicroProfile metric, which is really useful. Right. The other uh, awesome feature that- uh, And uh, by the way, this uh, insight is really nice because usually you would need uh, Prometheus and then Grafana to visualize the stuff and mm -hmm. sometimes it's really nice to have you know the visualization in place because you don't have to use to to curl the uh, matrix or try you know to parse them as a json absolutely absolutely this is just pre-built tool for you that you can use immediately and it's it's very pretty it's 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 very nice and it's very useful it's not just pretty but it's pretty and useful mm -hmm. which is hard to do um, mm -hmm. uh, hard to do the the cool new stuff is the pyara cloud so you know how you always talk about why isn't there a place they could just upload war and it works well mm -hmm. this is it oh. so you go you, you you create an account you upload your war it works period done that is actually great. So this was uh, not Pyara Cloud. You should call it serverless. 
which is a little bit hard for Payara server, but this is actually yes. serverless. Uh, yes, yes, this this is this is exactly exactly what it is. Because for um, me, it was always you know the I never got the idea why, for instance, lambdas are so special. Because if you have uh, creating you know AWS lambdas, you have to submit a, a zip, or you had to submit back then a zip to the Amazon lambda, and then a um, function was called. So, but if we submit a war to an application server and a JAXRS thing is called, then for me it's almost like Lambda. And yes. uh, and it, it really is. And um, for instance, right now in a Quarkus application, you can package as a Lambda and ship it to the cloud, but it still is a JAXRS uh, resource. And uh, the Payara Cloud, if Payara Cloud allows you to submit a war which gets executed, this is actually... This is actually a great news because this is like serverless. You don't care about the servers. This is what serverless means. It's not like there are no servers. It means I don't care about the servers. And I can just uh, submit the wars. Uh, and I think how many Payaras are started in the background is the matter of the Payara Inc. I don't care about that, right? I probably can yeah. scale less and more and pay less and more, but uh, I just care about my business logic, right? Exactly, exactly. That's, uh, you know, that's been designed with what, what you are always what you're, what you're preaching in mind, which is, which I agree completely. This is this is what this is what it should be. You know, I don't want to I don't want to set up the environment, even if it is as, as as easy as creating a Docker image. I don't need to do that. I just want to upload my WAR and have it run. Period. I would have to try it. So I would try you now to uh, get an account and uh, just yeah. uh, because uh, this is uh, what I never got from some microsystems. So back then they already had you know the application servers, the WARs, and the ears. And they've uh, the the um, Sun's grid was like the first cloud, and you had you know to to, to some package Java code with a zip and and sh ship it to the, the cloud. It's like I was asking you know, myself why they don't use wars. I mean, this would be so simple, and they missed the opportunity. So I'm glad the Payara is doing this right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, are you involved with Payara so Cloud somehow, or you are just testing the cloud? <laughs> I am. Uh, I'm not directly involved. Okay. Aside, as you said, from testing, uh, the, testing the you know the guts underneath, make sure that works. Uh, because you know it, uh, that whole initiative took uh, took place when you know when when I wasn't around. But uh, you, a lot of uh, if not if not all of our developers listen to the podcast and kind of agree with lots of things that that you're saying. Okay. Uh, so uh, you're you're actually uh, you you have some some uh, 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 some influence with uh, how Payara is uh, developed. Oh, nice! So I will invite someone from Payara to talk exclusively about the cloud because, um, yeah, because um, the impression I saw the Payara cloud announcement and I expected there is something else that uh, they created some more integrations, you know, with. Let's say Kubernetes is okay. What this could be, I don't see you know the opportunity. But uh, what sounds to me that the Payara cloud is like the managed Payara by Payara yes. in some cloud, and uh, yes. this makes a lot of sense. This makes actually a perfect sense. And um, what's interesting, there would be another revolution, right? So what I consider a revolution like Quarkus, which completely you know it's this micro profile with a little bit Jakarta -y and it, or Helidon, and it. Uh, Behind the scenes happened something different. So Payara, what they did right now is Payara Cloud. A similar thing is they say, okay, we take the server, don't care about the server, 
push your business logic to to us and we'll manage for you so it is uh, also a step a huge step forward i would say which where it makes absolute absolutely. sense mm -hmm. yeah ab absolutely um the uh the other thing i want to talk about is uh i mean quarkus and heladon they they i believe they will have their place uh however if even if you're running new projects Basically, I mean, the truth is that Quarkus does not run Jakarta EE, yeah. uh, and Payara does, and there's just no way around it. However, Payara also runs on GraalVM uh, in, you know, obviously in JVM mode, Not a, it does not run a native image, but it does run on GraalVM just fine and performs just fine. And, and, and yes, Payara doesn't have those uh, reflection-less startups, but again, as and I think you said on your last podcast, is you know it's three seconds versus one second. Do you really, really care if you have to rewrite your apps? Um, what what I'm searching for are killer use cases where you can we cannot argue about that, right? So, for instance, for you can the, always argue, then that, then that's fine. <laughs> no, no, let's say uh, the Payara cloud. Let's say Payara serverless cloud is a killer use case for Payara right now. If if yes. this really works, why? Because only with Payara or application servers you can have thin wars. They are technically impossible with Quarkus or Helidon, because Quarkus and Helidon they already have some pieces of the framework, you know, which has they are not meant to run as a serverless application. They are meant to run well in container. But if I push mm -hmm. a war to the cloud. I used to know the war as a first, um, how to call it, uh, first choice deployment format. And mm -hmm. uh, I don't care about containers at all. I just push, you know, the my business logic to the cloud, which uh, only knows uh, API, Jakarta E and MicroProfile, which is impossible with to achieve, you know, with Quarkus and Payara. But if I run uh, the entire stack, then uh, with Quarkus or Helidon, it's a different story because uh, then I, I'm, I don't, I mean, where Payara shines is shared deployment, which makes perfect sense for the cloud. And where Quarkus and Helidors are better or optimized for is one-to-one -one deployment, which doesn't make any sense for cloud or serverless and makes more sense for single applications. So the interesting part that we see right now is that the Payara becomes, you know, the runtime for the cloud, and Quarkus mm -hmm. and and uh, and and Helidon become the the microprofile runtimes to to ship applications. You know, this is a complete different approach, which is both are interesting. I would say. Yeah, 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 sure, sure. And and in Payara, if you if if it really the Payara cloud is like a serverless, it doesn't matter how how long it starts because it is started by the Payara company once a year i absolutely don't care about the startup time and i also don't care whether you're running graal vm or what i don't care i just ship my war to your cloud and uh, and um i'm happy right but if yeah, i yeah. run uh quarkus or helidon i absolutely care about everything because i'm in charge of building the cloud so i will have to you know to to uh buy uh ecs or uh azure instances or whatever cloud and manage this by myself so uh then this is a completely different use case. So I, I have to care about startup times, memory, CPU, everything. And yeah, so I, 
I'm really, um, how to call it, stunned about the idea that you could actually, or so I said it multiple times, but uh, this is the, ex the idea is not the problem, the execution is the problem, right? So if you have your, your own Pyra Cloud, this is this interesting. So really interesting, and even support costs are different, right? Because you can say, okay, support doesn't matter anymore because the, the Pyra servers are patched entire time by the Pyra company, right? Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's absolutely true. Oh, uh, one one more before I forget. I want to I want to uh, I want to shout out to OmniFaces team. You guys are doing a great job. I just completed a round of uh, uh, patches to or additions and enhancements to OmniFaces to improve it. And I had a very productive three weeks or four weeks with Bauk. I hope I pronounce your name correctly. Yeah, uh, this is the this is the number one guy. Uh, from uh, Stack Overflow, who cares about Java server faces, right? Yeah, exactly. I think it, it's it, Bauke, it's his German name, I think, right? Yeah. And Arian Times is the other guy who's, uh, they know, the Java EE8 security hero. Yeah, yeah. And he uh, he does a lot of stuff for uh, Jakarta EE exactly. as well. So big shout out. Thanks for uh, working with me on accepting my uh, my uh, JSF utility library into yours and uh, combining the efforts, which is uh, which is very uh, very nice. Uh, so JSF lives on. JSF is maintained, and uh, uh, it's uh, Prime Faces. Also, I want to shout out to uh, to Prime Faces uh, to Shatai that uh, you know we 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 love you guys. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> So Lenny, um, where people can find you, or what's you know what are, do you still have Twitter, or you you got you know your own personal Payara? No, I have. I still have Twitter. L P R I M A K L P R I M A K on Twitter. That's one of the ways. Uh, I mean, I get I get a lot of spam emails, so I'm sure my email is all over the internet. If you look for Lenny Premack, uh, yeah. yeah um, I'm on LinkedIn also. I've been more active on that since you know my my brief uh, job search. Uh -huh. uh, I'm not I'm not I'm now looking at LinkedIn as well. Uh, all basically, El Premac is on all social social media is uh, is is where you can find me. So uh, basically, uh, you know what you learned from your from your um, experience as a applicant to different companies is basically means if you're a developer. Don't apply anywhere, right? <laughs> this is really except Payara. But <laughs> well, what, what, what I've learned is that if you are uh, if you are not just out of school and know all your algorithms and the the big O notation left and right, and you can write your own you know binary search tree, or you know you use the cottage industry that's there to learn how to pass these coding interviews. Exactly. Don't don't bother going to uh, at least Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Then no. Um. This is what I already knew is you will have to cheat the system. So what do you mean is you will have to prepare you know just for the interview to pass the interview yes. by learning stuff who no one needs actually or, or I mean you barely need. You no, know, the B3 is interesting if you're building a database, but not really if you are enterprise or Java programmer. So this mm -hmm. is this the sad story, which yeah, is like it is because I think no one of pragmatic Java developers will ever pass such an interview without preparation. I would say exactly, and preparation means really sitting down a few hours a day, at least like three or four, 
for about two months to figure all that out because well, all these what I, th what I think there are, are portals or website you know for Amazon and Google interviews where where they know already exactly. all the questions so you have to go through the questions and do it what actually Back then, the Java certificate, Java certificate, Java certified programmer, was the hardest one, and there were mm -hmm. books about the questions. This was exactly the same cheating for me because it's, you you know if you just learn f to answer the questions, it's not like you are a certified programmer. You are you know certified uh, <laughs> questions processor. You know for the certification, it's a it's a complete different different use case speaking of speaking of uh useful programming questions i have i have one one for you oh. uh, did you ever did you ever have to deal with final transient field in java serializable class uh no but uh what do you remember me is uh, i did some experiments with final synchronized because back then and servlets oh. you could you could you could you could uh, improve performance of final with final methods. Final methods, yeah. Because uh, at the beginning of Java, if method was final, it was faster because the JVM knew there is no polymorphism in place. So uh, back then I did some experiments with it, but uh, not with final and transient. What... Uh, what final and transient in uh, well, let, me give you a, let me give you a specific use case. How do you uh, uh, how do you serialize injected services, injected singletons, to be exact? Outside, obviously, outside of Jakarta E, which handles them directly. You mean in injection outside Jakarta? Um, you need a kind yeah. of container. The problem is, if the injected thing. Is a proxy is probably not serializable, and whether it's a proxy or not, it depends whether you used the Jakarta E or MicroProfile services or not. Because if you inject a singleton, it probably is, it is probably not a proxy. But if you inject a singleton which is transactional, it is a proxy, and then this serialization is probably this proxy is not serializable. It is uh, actually in the Jakarta EE side, it all works pro pro it all works correctly because the proxies are serializable and they're handled correctly on one side and the other. Uh, that, that's uh, that's yeah, the uh, but the that's the thing. Yeah, you're okay. You're right because in Jakarta E, if the uh, if the um, application scoped or the singleton, it has to be serializable. Yes, because uh, then the proxy is serializable because the proxy will implement the serializable uh, uh, thing and. It, it is where I going with it because if you inject something into you get the error right uh, you get the error that the injected class has to be serializable so um, when it happens it happens in JSF because no. if you put um, yes, you're right the, the big, if you, the, yeah if you inject something to session scoped right mm -hmm. the, the, yeah the exactly this is what uh, the, the, then the uh, the proxies are but you said outside outside of Jakarta right. Yes, uh, yes, outside of Jakarta EE, because if you are inside Jakarta EE, the injections are, are handled for you. Yeah, and outside, so, what, what means outside? You are in Arcadian yeah. or what is outside? Let's, let's say, let's say you have a, oh, you have a non-serializable object 
you have many non-serializable objects that you need to use in your serializable class. And you need, that's why you make them transient because they're not serializable. So how do you handle that? Because when you deserialize that object, all your transient fields become null, right? When you deserialize them, they're null. But if they're final, you can't initialize them because they're final. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So that's the question. How do you handle that? Constructor injection, right? Is the only thing you can do. Uh, no injection. That's not available to you. That's the that, that's part of the question. Outside Jakarta ah, E. Outside Jakarta E. So what do you mean? I, I have to have injection without injection. Then you can Basically. implement two methods. I forgot the exact names. They are like magic methods. They are they are in the serializable Java doc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Read, read, read the external and write external. I think that's the name of the methods. And you can can't give, do that. Can't do that because that requires initializing your transient variables, and you can't because they're final. And uh, you could implement externalizable interface where you have the complete control over serialization and deserialization. Uh, that's that's not the scope of the question. That that's not in scope. Can't do that. Okay, you you can't do that because you cannot implement the interface, right? Uh, you it, it's it's like just just let's say the question says you cannot use externalizable. Okay, the class is serializable, okay. and you can. Okay. Use it. And then in serialization, what I remember is that there, uh, const- this is a strange way how the constructor is called by the CLI- d- by the uh, dis- by the deserializer, right? Yeah, deserializer, and yes. uh, it and uh, yeah. you can do something, you can execute code during the deserialization, which is a security risk. And with that, yes. you, you can probably do whatever you would like to do with because you could then set the fields. This is what I suppose okay so 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 this is where this is where it comes down to you cannot set the fields because they're final yeah. when you deserialize the object the object is already created when you use those methods this the magic methods mm-hmm. you can't set the fields mm-hmm. because they're final mm-hmm. and they're already null they're already set they're already null you can't serialize them uh, the answer to this question is there is another magic method that's called read resolve which nobody knows about however what that does is lets you create another object to put in place of your object that's already been deserialized. Mm-hmm. So read resolve will return new of your object, mm-hmm. but here's the here's the trick. The trick is that uh, let's say your object, your serialized object, has a lot of state. Okay, and the state could be recursive, could be deep. Uh, you know, you, you don't know what it is, right? That that's that's the whole problem. So the issue is if you use this read resolve method, you need to recreate the class with all the states that's that's already been deserialized. And the only way I know how to do that in a reproducible and easy way is with ding 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 project Lombok. Because it's got a builder pattern with a two builder class. So all you got to do is in that read resolve method, you you could say uh two builder. And it'll mm-hmm. just give you, oh, sorry, to builder.build, and that'll return the exact copy of your class that's been deserialized with no other boilerplate. So you are back to, you know, this is this why why you like Lombok. And yes. I still not convinced. I mean, we had a discussion the last time. You no, know, I always ask myself what happens if the two Lombok guys lost a, you know, interest on Lombok. I have an I, I have an answer for you. They're actually 13 or no, 17 committers that have pushed PRs into Lombok. It's not just it's not just two guys anymore. 
if you search for Lombok on GitHub, this is not entirely true. Lombok GitHub, let's do this. I will put it to show yeah. notes, Lenny. What yeah, I would absolutely. what I would say what I expected is I say if they lose their interest, I will I will take over. So this would would be my Yeah, I, I might. I don't know, but but if you today. go to the uh Lombok is the Switzerland yeah. is the organization Lombok and you search for commits, you will see that the two guys, Eris Pilke and Switzerland, they have a lot of commits and the number three, almost nothing. There are lots of contributors, but they are inactive. You have to do uh, this. When you push a PR, the PR is under the uh, these two guys' name. But the people who actually built the PR are not. Okay. At least that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, that's it's true. The, even though the commits are by these two guys, they're they're committers, but they're not the contributors of a lot of those PRs. This was too sure. Yeah, this is one PR. You are right. Just one PR, one PR, one PR, and then lots of commits. Yeah, but they. I would say more than fifty percent comes from them. I just look at true. the commits right now. Mm -hmm. that, that 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 that. That is true. I, I agree with you there 100%. Mm -hmm. and this um, is why, not uh, issue for you, but uh, you know, I'm asked about my opinion about Lombok for larger projects, and this is no more that easy, because uh, if I say yes, they will hire you know, external consultants, which will use a lot Lombok, and then if they uh, these two Lombok guys you know, lost the interest, no one will maintain that. So this is like, my clients only have to know the facts, so I show you know the list and say, this is like it is. Now um, you have to decide, and then, then decide for Lombok or, or, or uh, against Lombok. But p point is, Lombok isn't you know uh, driven by two developers. And I think if you take a look at Payara, it looks way better than Lombok. I would guess. Let's see, Payara GitHub should be um, Payara is a much better. Yeah, let's the, see. The other thing. Let, about let's Lombok compare that... uh, Lombok to Payara. And oh, yeah, the, it I looks mean, way better. I mean, there is number one is Pendrex, then Steve Milic was, then JB. It now took over. Then, then uh, Jonathan C, C was very active. Jugaurav Gau, Gupta very active. And what's interesting in Payara is, and the beginning, the uh, Andrew Pilich and Steve Millich were very active. Now they are a little bit less active, and the others are picking up. So what it means to me, and there are lots of contribution. Alan Roth, D. Mate, and whatever. And uh, Mark, what I'm missing is Lenny. Is somehow lazy. Lenny Primek, where is he? Because you got to look at tests for me. Ah, okay. The, uh, and uh, <laughs> and uh, so I would say in the case of Payara, if you take a look at the commit list, and by the way, what's also impressive, the uh, commits in Payara, 2015, so it was, uh, they are increasing. They are increasing more and more. So Payara becomes over time more and more active. And what I see at the commit list is that the knowledge is spread uh, across different developers and there are at least one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, still fifteen, sixteen. So let's say seventeen active developers and all others are, you know, contributed uh, code and there are in total how many contributors? Uh seventy six contributors. So I would say yeah. for that, right? If you I would say Lombok is if, if you consider the entire Java community is more popular than Payara, I would say. Payara is more sp specialist tool. And still, there are 76 uh, contributors in Payara, 
and you have far more active community in Lombok, which is not very good sign for Lombok, right? All I all I can say is uh, <laughs> now we are working for Payara, so you, you cannot yeah, argue no. with me right now. <laughs> no, I, I I'm not arguing. I agree with you. I I agree with you on all your points. However, Lombok has a big de-risking tool associated with it. It's called D-Lombok. All you have to do is pay. If you if all of a sudden people they lose interest for some reason, Lombok is going away. All you have to do is copy and paste your little thing into your Maven file that's called dlombok. Uh, you run it, and all your code has converted from Lombok to dlombok. Yeah, and you're then right. you're no in, longer in, dependent. In your case, but uh, a, a larger enterprise project, um, let's say one software provider does something with Lombok, and the other software provider says, I don't like Lombok. So what will mean is they will dlombok their code, and the second one gets a crazy amount of code which we would be properly not written in the first place. Because if I don't have the Lombok, I wouldn't write, you know, all the getters and setters because I don't need them always. But the Lombok developers always try, as I tend to do this, that they have the, how is yes. it called? They, they, this complete different programming style, I would say. You are right. I, I, I'm, I'm, I, no, I'm, I try to, I look at Lombok from the more organizational perspective, from tool perspective is great. I personally don't like Lombok because it's code generator and I try to, I tend not to like them but I get Lombok can be very useful we had the conversation the last time if you have you know uh, if you need to have consistent hash code let's say uh, and equals because uh, you store the objects in a hash I mean Lombok is golden right but um, in my projects developers would like to have Lombok for the same reasons like they would like to have you know reactive programming because they were at conference and they would like yeah. to try something new. And this is where I see, okay, then don't use Lombok for that. Yeah, that is that is absolutely true. And that's true for any kind of yeah, sure. tool. Yeah, yeah. That, that is, I so If you ask you me my opinion about something, usually I say no, why you need it, right? Because I learned over time as a consultant, you should not answer the yeah. questions directly. The first question should be why you need it. And and I, I would stop with a, a short story which happened to me. And this was back then. Eclipse RCP project. I was actually in charge of the backend, but someone told me, "Okay, uh, 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 hey Adam, can you help me with uh, Gengo four patterns?" So sure, maybe. And uh, then he asked me, "You know, what is how adapter pattern works, how command works, how factory, abstract factory, and decorator?" And I told him. And then and after one hour, I said, "Okay, what you would actually would like to do?" And uh, he told me, "Yeah, I, I have here a button in Eclipse RCP, and I would like to you know invoke if I push this button." I would like to invoke this method, but it has to be really flexible. And what he wrote is a framework around the button, you know, to be very flexible, which method was actually, but the button was like, okay, or safe, it was pointless. And then I, I really thought, okay, it's actually my fault that we created the the, the, <laughs> the framework here and this <laughs> half a day. And actually at the beginning, I, I would just now ask him, why you would like to know it? And if say, okay, I would like to call the methods, like forgot about the patterns, just call the method. And this is why a trend, you know, if someone asks me a question about libraries or frameworks, I would say, okay, why you would like to know it? Or what's your problem? If you don't have problem, forget about the frameworks, right? Yeah, that that, that, is, that is very true. Very pragmatic. <clears throat> I'm very, uh, I, I'm with you. I'm very pragmatic too. I want to solve the problem. This is why when you get into these long conversation of, you know, we better do this or better do that. I'm always like, let's back up a bit. How do you solve the actual problem? Because I always remember, I'm not in like projects now, but I'm always keeping that in the back of my mind. How is this from the user's perspective? And that's what I like I do with Payara as well. Like, 
how is this helping the user? Is this helping the user? Is this helping? What does this actually do? Is this usable? Like, what can we do to make it usable if it's not? So you, you just got to always pull back and see, is this useful? Is that useful? Is that really useful? You got to really look at that stuff. Yeah, and this is also, you know, complete different perspective. If, for instance, if you are in the Payara project and reuse, for instance, or sharing uh, code dry is very important because in in uh, from my perspective, in my project, it's less important. For instance, people, sometimes I create a small libraries, you know, on my GitHub account, and people ask me, you know, can we use that? So I get uh, for, so sure, I mean, this is uh, open source. But before you download the jar, you know, take the code and take ownership of the code because then you are not depending on me. Because mm -hmm. who knows, no, uh, I'm, I created some libraries and I have no, no time to maintain them. And if you wait until I release something, it's a risk. But if you just, you know, pick the code, you can do whatever you like. You're not depending on me. And if you, uh, and, and this is, you know, the price of open source is not free. You you will have, you know, to maintain it, the, the relation either to the author or the relation to the code, which not belongs to you. Oh, speaking of, speaking of the just contributing and not just taking, this was, this was so funny. I, I remember this uh, because, I mean, uh, my, uh, I have my own library, my own utility library, which uh, part of it I contributed into OmniFaces now. Uh, so the, my library started with Tapestry. Are you familiar with Tapestry at all? Yeah. Okay. I, uh, so, this was an, uh, a very popular framework a few years ago. So like, uh, it was after Struts was like one of the, you know, yeah. the, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I started using Tapestry. However, uh, I switched to JSF because Tapestry by itself is okay, but the problem is it, it has its own IOC. It doesn't support CDI or any kind of, you know, it's got its own IOC, which is completely atrocious. And every time I had to change something, I had to mess with the IOC because it didn't work or something else didn't work. So I'm like, no, uh, JSF is better. So I switched to JSF uh, a long time ago. This was like 2000. 13 or 14 or 12 even, like a long time ago, eight years ago. Um, so, but before I switched to JSF, uh, there was an upgrade of Tapestry from <clears throat> 5.3 to 5.4. So I tried to upgrade my project from 5.3 Tapestry 5.3 to 5.4, and I created a branch. And I never finished it. Mm -hmm. uh, I kind of abandoned it. And it's on GitHub. Uh, so in 2020, when I did the contribution to OmniFace, and I'm like, let's clean up all these all these branches. So I deleted the 5.4 Tapestry branch, and two days later, there's some guy emailing me says, where did this branch go? <laughs> I'm like, <"What?" laughs> I haven't used it in like eight or 10 years. What, what, like, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. By the way, do Tapestry still around? They released 5.6.1 in, in September, which uh, is surprising. So this is- I know. Uh-huh. Interesting. It's probably got a user base, and you know, and, and and that's perfectly fine. It's uh, it's great. But I'm like, well, do you want to take this over? Do you want to complete this branch? So he's like, no, I don't want to. I'm like, all right, I'm not going to restore it because if you're not going to take ownership of the code, you don't really, you know, you don't really need it. So, you know, you can't just take 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 from open source. You got to give back. Okay, Lenny, thank you. It was fun, and uh, now. It's always dangerous to to talk with you because now I will investigate a little bit more Pyra Cloud, um, and um, see you properly. You know, one point of future.
talk about your your next experiments. Sounds good. Don't be don't be too harsh. It's early alpha. <laughs> <laughs> But we welcome we welcome your feedback. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.